0: Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 11. That's Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9. And I'm reading from the NIV. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us bake bricks, bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth.
1: Well, Good morning everyone, and thank you for joining us once again online. It's really terrific to be with you today. My name's Carl, and I'm the Senior Pastor of Trinity Church Unley. Today we're looking at a pretty well-known story in Genesis about the building of a tower. I wonder as we kick off today, what are you like with heights? Now, I'm not the worst with heights, but I've got to admit, I am a little bit scared sometimes when it comes to really tall things. Back quite a long time ago now, when I was still an engineering student, I worked for a summer at the Port Stanback Fuel Refinery. One of the jobs I was given was to climb to the top of the distillation or the processing columns and check the safety valves right at the top of these columns. Now most of these columns are pretty skinny less than a meter in diameter and they stretch maybe 10 maybe 20 meters up into the air and to get to the top of these columns you have to climb a few a few ladders. The way it works is you climb up the first ladder you go up a few meters climb onto a platform move around about 90 degrees, up the next ladder to the next platform and round and round you go. There's no harness. The thinking is that if you fall, well, you'll only fall to the platform below you, not all the way down. But those platforms, they're made from that sort of steel mesh. That's strong enough for sure, but you can see right through it to the ground below. And Port Steinbeck was an old refinery and it was down by the sea. And so as you can imagine, the ladders were rusty but they're really rusty. And I hated every step I climbed up. The columns swayed back and forth in the wind and I hung on knuckles white, teeth and every other bit of me clenched tightly. I climbed every column in the refinery except one. Just couldn't do that last one. It seemed higher than the rest of them. It seemed rustier. It seemed to sway back and forth more than the others. I tried a few times to start up, up to the first platform, then to the next, but I couldn't get myself to the top. Finally, I finally had to swallow my pride and go and find my supervisor and say, I'm sorry, I just, I can't do it. Sometimes we get freaked out by heights. But I reckon in the most part, we have this great desire as humans to climb the heights. So, for example, Tourists love to climb to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I can remember as a young kid climbing to the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. And every year, hundreds, I think, maybe even thousands try to scale Mount Everest despite it being well, it just seems to be a death trap. I reckon it's that same kind of feeling that spurs on the competition that we have in this world to, to build tall buildings. Today, the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's 829.8 metres tall. It's the tallest skyscraper ever. In fact, it's the tallest freestanding structure. In fact, it's the, just the tallest and the highest thing that people, humanity, have ever built. But did you know that the top 244 metres of that tower are what they call vanity heights? There's no space, it's just a spire, a pole that reaches up into the heavens. And yet even with that 244 metres of vanity high at the top of that tower, it may soon be eclipsed. The Jeddah Tower, if it ever gets finished building, is expected to go through one kilometre high. Well, today we've read the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. These verses narrate the building of, of a tall tower. A tower that reaches up into the heavens. It's also a strange passage, isn't it? God scatters the people and he confuses their language. Why? Why is he doing this? It seems to be judgment, doesn't it? That much is clear. but, But what have the people done? What have they done wrong? Well, here's what I think is the big idea of this passage. This passage is a reminder that humans are subject to God. This passage reminds us that God is in control and that God is not to be manipulated by human schemes or human plots. Today we're reminded that despite our technological prowess, God is still in charge and that we as humans are God's creatures. We can't better God. This passage also helps us to see that we shouldn't try and manipulate God. Don't mishear me here. Sure, we should pray to God and we should plead with him in prayer. We should be asking him for our daily bread. But I think this passage helps us to see that our God is sovereign and mighty and powerful and all-knowing. And it's wrong then to think that our God could be bought or bribed or manipulated, especially for our own ends. And I get all that out of this story about a tower, well, let's have a look at the passage together. It's a small passage, really, isn't it? The flood narrative stretched from chapter 6 right through to chapter 9, and this story, on the other hand, well, it's only nine verses long. It kind of has two sections to it. The first four verses are about human action, and the remainder of the passage is about God's response to this action. Well, let's start by just thinking about what happens in the story? Let me read to you the first four verses. The first four verses talk about the human action. This is what it says. Now, the world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for water. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. First one tells us that the people spoke the same language. And for those of you who have already read chapter 10 of Genesis then you'll notice that this story must be chronologically out of order because in chapter 10 the languages and the scattering of the people well, well that's already occurred, that's already happened and so chronologically these verses come before chapter 10. Verse 2 tells us that the people are moving eastward, that means that they're continuing to move away from the Garden of Eden into the land of southern Mesopotamia And it's there that they settle. They find a home. They make for themselves baked bricks. Now, baked bricks are, of course, stronger and longer lasting than ordinary mud bricks. And and in a sense, this represents new technology. With these baked bricks, it means that they can build bigger and more permanent structures, even if you can't find stone to do that with. And that's the way that much of the buildings in Mesopotamia are made, where there apparently isn't much stone for building. Well, the people get to work on their building project, and just like our modern construction industry, they seek to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. They seem to be doing it for two reasons. Firstly, they want to make a name for themselves. And secondly, they don't want to be scattered. Now, I want to suggest to you that verse 5 is an important verse in this passage. Like so much of what we've already seen in Genesis. This writing is skillful and it's carefully structured. And just like the chiastic structure that we saw in the flood narrative. So here there's a chiastic structure in the story. With the Lord coming down as the turning point. Now again I'm borrowing from Gorn and Wenham and his commentary on Genesis. I'm going to put the structure up onto the screen for you right now. And what I want you to notice from the structure is, is the turning point. It's there in verse 5. Now, there's a lot of detail in this chiastic structure. Don't get too bogged down in it, but do have a look at the turning point that we see there in verse 5. So what does it say in verse 5? But the Lord came down to see, and he sees the city and the tower the people are building. Now, as I said, I don't want to go into this in too much depth. All I really want you to note here is that God coming down is the point at which this story turns. God coming down seems, in one sense, to be a critical part of the story. Let's move on. Verses 6 to 9, then, are all about God's response to what he sees when he comes down. Let me keep reading to you these verses from verse 6. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Well, it's clear, isn't it, from these verses that the people have, well, they've done something that's not really pleasing God. And so God frustrates their progress and he does that by confusing their language and then no longer able to communicate they're scattered and disbanded and it seems that the building project that they're working on begins to stall so that's the content of the story now i want to ask what does the story mean and as we read this little story i think one of the questions that we all want to know really is what have the people done wrong you might ask questions like so does God not like building projects? Does God not like towers? Uh, what's the offence that the people here have caused to God? Well, if we look at the text closely, it seems that there is at least something in this passage to do with pride, something to do with pride or arrogance. Verse 4 tells us that the reason the people are building the tower was to make a name for themselves. So is it pride and and human satisfaction in their own accomplishments that is offending God? here? Is God scattering them because they're trying to be like him by reaching up to the heavens? Maybe they're trying to be a bit like God. Maybe. Or maybe it's the building of the city that God doesn't like. God has told the people to fill the earth. Is the problem here that the people are settling in one spot and therefore, you know, they're hardly filling the earth by being in one spot? Is God got against cities. If that's the case, then the punishment kind of fits the crime, doesn't it? The outcome of the story is that the people are scattered. Their hands are forced through not being able to communicate. And in a way, I think both of these ideas, what doesn't like their pride and the building of a city, Both of these things make sense of the text that we have in front of us. But perhaps, just perhaps, there's more going on in this story than just those things. One of the difficulties we have in reading Genesis is that we're unfamiliar with the way that the ancient world works. We know the modern world, the world in which we live, but we can't really understand what the ancient world was like unless we specifically go and study it. This morning, I'm leaning heavily on a guy called John Walton, his work on this passage, because I think he's onto something here. John Walton has spent considerable time investigating what the ancient world might have been like, and, and his research, it leads him to ask this question. Why were the people, why were the people building the tower in the first place? I not know how you'd answer that question. Here's how I would have answered that question. Well, they're building a tower so they might climb up into the heavens. That's how they demonstrate their engineering prowess and their, their skillful capability. I mean, that's why we build skyscrapers today, isn't it? To demonstrate how good we are and how technologically advanced we are. In a way, we do it to kind of reach up to God to be a bit like him. But here's what Walton suggests, and I should say it is only a suggestion. Here's what he suggests. The tower is not for the people to climb up towards God, but rather for God to come down to the people. See, Walton suggests that the tower is what we today call a ziggurat. Now, they still exist today as ruins. In fact, here's a photo of one. It's been um, done up a little bit, but you can see it's got an external skin of baked brick and tar mortar, and that fits with what we read in the text. And these ziggurats were built in the southern Mesopotamian region. Archaeologists, at least they think, they think they know a fair bit about ziggurats and what they were designed to do. You can see from the photo that the defining architectural feature of a ziggurat is the stairway or ramp That runs up the side of the ziggurat. Now here's the thing. That ramp is not for people. It's not for people to go up. But rather that ramp is designed for God to come down. It's designed for God to descend from his place in the heaven and come down to earth. And it's thought that often a temple was constructed at the bottom of the ziggurat. So that God could descend the stairway or the ramp. And then enter into the temple. That's what the architecture looks like. So then, why are the people building the tower? Why are the people building a ziggurat? Well, the people are trying to entice God to come down from the heavens to be with them in their temple. And remember that middle verse in the text, verse 5? God does indeed come down to see what's going on. Well, you might ask, is that really a bad thing? Since the tower is designed to be like a, a conduit between heaven and earth. Why does God scatter them and confuse their language for this? Well, perhaps the offence here is more to do with seeing God in the wrong way. So in the ancient world, it was a common thought that humanity had been created to meet the needs of the gods. You might ask, well, what sort of needs do gods have? Well, in the ancient thinking, they, they thought they would need food and drink And shelter, and that people have been created just to provide these things. And so, in the temple, these things were offered to God. And in doing so, and here's the crux of the point the people are trying to manipulate God for their own benefit. Here's the kind of thinking today, God will feed you, will fill your stomach, will give you the finest loaf of bread. But next season, God, we expect you to send abundant rain. We've fed you, now you do your work in providing the rain. Well, God, here's a choice bottle of wine. But next season, we expect the days to be sunny and the nights to be cool and the harvest to be plentiful. In other words, the people think that by doing this, they'll be able to twist God's arm. Now, I said this is only a suggestion about how we might interpret this story, But it does seem to make sense of the text that we have in front of us. And it does help us understand what the offence in this story is all about. It's about approaching God in the wrong way. Seeing God through the wrong eyes. See, after all, we are creatures and God is God. We're part of his creation. And the true God doesn't have needs. God doesn't need to be fed by people and He's certainly not obligated to send rain or blessings because we offer things to him. Well, that's how we understand God from the Christian Bible, from the rest of the Bible that tells us about God. Let me read to you from Psalm 50, where we see just some of these truths. This is God speaking. I'm going to read from verse nine. This is God speaking. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, God is the creator that makes Him the owner, and everything in this world is His. So what right do we have to bring something to him thinking that might cause him to favour us? Maybe that brings the offence in chapter 11 to light, doesn't it? It means that the offence is based on an incorrect view of who God is. It's, it's based on having a too small view of God and, and not recognising that he's the God of heaven and earth and, and everything. He's the creator, the almighty. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Here's the thing for us today, though. I reckon we slip into this pattern of behaviour very easily. You know, sure, we're not out in our backyards building physical towers to the heavens in order to entice God to come down for a sausage and bread. But I think at least some of us might have tried to do a deal with God. Have you ever offered a prayer to God that says, well, "I made something like this. It's been a hard week this week, God. Everything's gone wrong. I need your help. Please get me through this next meeting with my boss. Please don't make this be bad news. Now, if you do that, I promise I'll go to church on Sunday. Or maybe you say this, God." please cure me of the water on my toe or the crink in my neck or that worrying mole I've got on my arm. And if you cure me from those things, I'll give a bit more money to the local charity. They're silly examples really, aren't they? I might not feel that we're enticing God down with an elaborate towel, but I think we've all at times, haven't we, tried to manipulate God, to twist his arm so that our names will be exalted that we'll be better off, not God's. John Moulton has some great words on this, and I'm just going to read them to you from his commentary. He says, by nature, we're all pagans, caught in the Babel syndrome. When we think we can manipulate God by praying in Jesus' name to achieve selfish purposes, a paganism is showing when we claim promises as a means of making God do what we want him to do, our paganism is showing. When we come to think we are indispensable to God because of the money we donate, the talents we have, the ministries we engage in, or the worship we offer, our paganism is showing. It means we're not seeing God the right way. When we treat God as a child to be cajoled or a tyrant to be appeased, the Babel syndrome is surging in our faith We want to be able to harness his power for our benefit. No strings attached. That is God abuse. Here's the reality for us today. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need me to build this church, even though I'm the pastor. He doesn't need Mike, as good as his kids' talks are, to contact, to reach the families in Hunley. He may choose to use us to do those things. He may choose to include you in the mission of saving others and I pray that he does that. But here's the thing, our God does not have needs that must be satisfied like we do as people. He doesn't need us. He's all powerful, all present and all knowing. <laughs> I hope that's a terrific encouragement for you today. God is bigger than us. He's more powerful than us. Yeah, And for me, that's so liberating and so freeing and so encouraging to remember. I've not messed up God's plans with my own stupidity. The last couple of months have been terrible in many ways, haven't they? God is still in control. And that's despite my inactitude and all the mistakes that I've made. His will will be done because he's a mighty, powerful God. And the more we remember that, the less I think we'll fall into the trap of thinking that God needs us. So, part of the solution then to the problem that we see in Genesis chapter 11 is seeing God for who he is. Thousands of years after the events at Babel, God would once again come down from heaven, not this time via a stairway of a ziggurat, but in the birth of a baby. And in the birth of Jesus, in that person, we have a full and a complete picture of who God is. And it opens our eyes to what God is like. I love the opening verses to the letter of the Colossan, Coloss, church in Colossae, which gives us such a powerful picture of who and what Jesus is. When I read these words to you, know, I just want you to see the, the size and the magnitude of Jesus. This is what it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If we see Jesus like this, as the creator, as the one of power, as the one in which all things hold together, the beginning and the end, We'll be protecting ourselves from having too small a view of God. And yet, despite all of this, despite the size of God, despite his power, his awe, his majesty, God does choose to work in and through us. Despite God being all powerful and not needing us, he still does work through people. Have you ever noticed how the events of Pentecost seem to kind of mirror or reflect the events of Babel? In Acts chapter 2, we read of God again coming down from heaven, this time in the person of the Spirit. And the disciples, they begin to speak in tongues, and the crowds looking on, they are utterly amazed because they hear them speaking in their own native tongues. The crowds have come from across the world. Many different languages and people were present at that time. They were represented in those listening. And yet each person heard them speaking in their native languages. And what did they hear? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. I hope this week we too will have opportunity to be filled with the Spirit. Of course in a different way to what happened at Pentecost. But, but filled nonetheless To speak of the wonders of God. It's really important at this time of distress in our world, isn't it? We worship a great God, a wonderful God, a God who rules triumphantly. And yet we're his creatures. But he's made a way for us to know him. He's come down to us. He's made a way to forgive us in sending his son. He's fixed our problem, the problem of sin. He's magnificent as our God and he's also merciful. We have a great God. and I'm going to pray for us today using some words that St. Augustine wrote. For who is the Lord except our Lord? Who is God except our God, the highest, the most good, the most mighty, the most omnipotent, the most merciful, yet the most present, the most beautiful, the strongest.